Good morning, everybody. This is Devin Boker, and you are listening to The Wildlife, a show about the natural world and how to protect it. I was just about to leave um, and and post this episode before going on a uh, a three-day camping trip and um, realized everything was done except for the intro, which is kind of an important piece. And um, unfortunately, it uh, comes at a time when I'm having a horrible morning for allergies. So bear with me a moment. I appreciate it. This, like many of the interview episodes that we have posted lately, was an interview that took place just about a year ago with Dr. Jalad Bino. Um, He is a, a, a platypus researcher. He's passionate about conservation and science. His whole goal is to address the ongoing biodiversity crisis by looking at what are the processes happening underneath? What are the processes that are shaping biodiversity at all kinds of different scales over space and over time? And how can we use that information to prioritize conservation management? He is a part of the Platypus Conservation Initiative and the Global Standard for Wetland Conservation. We spoke for nearly two hours, super passionate guy, very down to earth, very likable, knows his stuff. And let me tell you, as someone who thought that they knew a pretty decent amount about platypuses before this interview, um, I I was blown away by just how much I didn't know. Because after all, I mean, you really don't know what you don't know. In this episode, we talk about the fact that uh, way back when people thought they were fake, um, some of their extreme adaptations like their bill and their egg laying and sweating of the milk and venomous spurs, size, what makes monotremes monotremes, scientific names, common names, and have a listener lightning round, which includes a question that I immediately regretted actually asking. But at the same time, I mean, how could I not? You'll see. Anyway, I got to be on my way out. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the wildlife. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and prepare to have your mind blown. It's time for platypuses with Jalad Bino. They're, they're one of those animals that are sort of an icon. You know, everybody knows tigers and lions, but everybody also knows platypus. But yeah. in general, you know, they know a few things about platypus. They know that they have like a bill looking thing, that they are in the water. Uh, a lot of people know that they lay eggs. But then in terms of really anything else, I mean, that's it. You know, one of the things that... I, I always notice here. So, do you know what a do you know what a jackalope is, by chance? A jackalope. Yes. Let me Google it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's this okay, fake me... it's this fake animal that in the U.S. Um, you know people talk about like I I I, I would assume that most people like oh yeah, I yeah. Funny. yeah it's like a rabbit a with rabbit. antlers yeah <laughs> uh, and and people always are like yeah you know it's a jackalope and it's it's kind of a funny thing yeah. well there's these commercials here that um, for like lunchables like the kid snacks and um, they have a jackalope and a platypus and I'm always like but a platypus is real <laughs> the jackalope isn't so what are, do you not think it's real like it always it I, it, yeah. it confuses I, me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so the, yeah, you you know, the the story goes that they thought it was fake when they first uh, when they sent the first platypuses to back to England. Mm-hmm. You know, so they they were sure it was a hoax. So that's that's the, <laughs> the story. They were sure somebody kind of sewed together some taxidermist sewed together a bunch of different animals together. I think the 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 bill that 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 was very peculiar. It's very leathery. Oh, really? Um, yeah really and so and it has these yeah and it has like it's on the top it has like a so it ha- the bill but then there are like these leathery flappy things that protect the face so the thing about their bills is that they're loaded with electro and mechano receptors uh, thousands and so really highly sensitive bill mm-hmm. um that it could use to detect prey it's very it's a very cute animal to be honest they're about i guess the males they're about 60 centimeters long. Oh, okay. 
What's the conversion there to inches? Roughly 26 inches or just over two feet. About, about what I about what I would imagine, you know, picturing a yeah. platypus in terms of size. Yeah, with the tail and all that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, but there's a bit, but they, they get smaller. Um, mm -hmm. So there's quite a, like if you go up, you remember when we were chatting about the, the extent of the species. So it goes yeah. all the way from far north, north um, Queensland, where it's a very tropical environment and to down to, we were surveying like an Alpine area where the water freezes and, you know, so like one of, uh -huh, that's another story. So we were surveying for platypuses and we the water was, it was minus five outside and we were like, going into the water at 3 a.m. and the, the nets are frozen and you have to kind of to unknot them. You have to kind of splash freezing water on the net to try and defrost the net. So yeah, so they get, um, so they, the, you can find platypuses in a whole range of environments and, and, and that really drives different sizes. Mm -hmm. So the, the phenotypes, so they're much smaller up in, in where in hot climates and they get down to Tasmania, they get much bigger. Well, that makes sense. Um, and, and heavier. Yeah. 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 So, so they can go from, oh, now we need to convert kilos. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like females are about one kilo. Um, males are, can get up to three kilos, like the big ones in Tasmania. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they get, um, you get quite a range. Um, that's, that's also, I mean, for the length, I, I don't know, that seems lighter than I would have thought. Because that's uh, three kilos is about what uh, six pounds. So I'm gonna have to yeah. Yeah, I mean I'll that's so you know yeah. like a, a gallon of water is about eight pounds. So to think that it's a little less than that is kind of surprising. And those are big ones. Like they, yeah, you'd lift them. You, when you, they're they're yeah they're quite light and small. I mean they're they've got like a lot of fat on them as well. Um, mm -hmm. They're not. I wouldn't say they're super muscular or anything like that i think you know most of the time they're floating on the water and diving yeah i've heard it before a lot of people kind of equate them to like the australian version of a beaver and so they probably would think that they're roughly that size and they get you know 20 30 pounds uh you know the you know beavers here and yeah beavers are big huh? yeah so um so to to hear that there's that much lighter i think would be shocking to people <laughs> Yeah, and and when the, the when the puggles come out, like those, so when the the young, like when they they when they emerge, they're really small, tiny. Mm -hmm. um, you can like almost fit them in the palm of your hand. So uh, another another thing that I, I just for like clarification for folks uh, who who will be eventually listening, um, I, I I you know it's not a surprise that platypus are are kind of peculiar in terms of, the, of a lot of the adaptations that they have compared to most mammals. And so, um, what, what kind of defines, you know, what, what type of mammal are they, I suppose yeah. would be one question and, and why so different? So, okay. So platypus evolution, I guess the, um, our common ancestor is about, well, it, you know, rough guess kind of thing is like about, um, maybe 200 million years ago, oh, wow. maybe a bit less, like 100. So, so the divergence of the monotremes. So monotremes, the uh, the group that platypuses belong to, also include two types of echidna. And monotremes are mammals, just like marsupials are mammals, but they're not your typical mammal, which has live birth and things like that. Monotremes lay eggs, and they sweat their milk. There's other differences, but uh, that's kind of the big one. Um, that predates placenta, the, the versions of placenta mammals and, um, and pouch like macropods and, mm. and all those kind of, um, animals. Um, and that, like, if you think so that that's like, that's you know, quite a long time ago, I think like in, you know, dinosaurs, you know, back when the dinosaurs kind of rolled earth, that's when platypuses diverged from the rest of the mammals. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's obviously the reason why it has so many of these like unique and weirdly features that are, um, you know, more related to reptiles and birds yeah. um, than placental mammals. Um, 
Yeah. So I guess, you know, in terms of it's like unique features, so obviously, yes, they lay eggs. Um, mm -hmm. Platypuses lay anywhere between one and two eggs. Uh, usually, I guess, probably one. I think that the digestion, hatching, and the rearing of young and all that, it's like about three months. Um, until they kind of emerge. All of these traits, of course, are quite weird compared to the other 5,000 or so species of mammal, but none of those compared to this next one. Have, so they're, they've got these, obviously, the, the venomous spurs. You heard that right, venomous spurs. Mm -hmm. So males have these spurs on their hind legs. They're about maybe an inch long. Oh, wow. Uh, maybe a bit less, yeah, so... No, inches, two and a half, maybe half an inch, sorry, half an okay. inch. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was trying to convert there. I guess for the, the reason for the, the venom is uh, not really sure. Like the, it seems to the production of venom in males, so the only, the spurs only occur in, in male platypuses, mm -hmm. and the venom starts producing around the breeding season. So they reckon it's mostly to fighting between male platypuses. Oh, interesting. Really okay. the reason for the spurs, it's not, you know, it's probably not like a defense mechanism against predators or, or anything like that. Um, so it's more to do with um, breeding. That always uh, strikes me like those those sorts of like traits and adaptations always kind of strike me as like particularly cool because it, I, I don't know. I feel like logically it's easy to understand something that came about because it's like, oh, this is a defense against something that's trying to eat me. Mm -hmm. um, but if you know, when it's something like involving yeah. your own species. You know, it's like a defense or competition type tool. Uh, it, it, that's that's just kind of interesting to think about. Uh, you know, the ways yeah. that, that could come about. Uh, but but yeah, but with uh, I guess the, the, with platypuses um, and male platypuses, females when they when they when they hatch, mm -hmm. um, and in their first kind of weeks months of life, they have a very tiny spur. Oh, interesting. And that kind of falls off. Um... Now here's what's weird. If the venomous spurs are related to sexual selection, and I suppose male competition, is the venom they develop specifically harmful to other platypuses? Because that'd be kind of weird, like basically unheard of. Um, I guess that when if if a platypus gets jabbed with these with the venom, like probably the effect on platypuses, probably I don't know, maybe the effect on platypuses isn't as severe as it is to other animals. Maybe they have like a you know specific uh, proteins that break it up quicker or something like that. Because I know in, in, in humans, mm -hmm. if you get spurred, like that's from hearing, that's like you can get pain for excruciating pain for like up to six months. Wow. Um, like Im immobilizing pain. Wow. Uh, you, like you do not want to get spurred. Wow. Um, and like I was told like morphine doesn't help and, you know, things like that. Apparently it doesn't cause tissue atrophy or anything like that like other venoms, but still. Yeah, so for us, it's like assume a male until proven otherwise. And so <laughs> you have to be very cautious, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and, so uh, and there's there's no reason to believe that, you know, it's like an anti-predator defense uh, to an extent uh, or anything, I, or? You know, may, maybe in the past. Mm, sure. So if you think about what are the, like the present day predators, potential predators, I would say, so there was the, the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, mm. um, that uh, went extinct, uh, I think in the 50s, was it? Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was kind of the apex predator in Australia. Yeah. Um, so maybe, I know now, so you get cats and foxes, they're an invasive species in Australia, and they pre predate on platypuses. Okay. Um, particularly during, you know, we're talking about the impact of river regulation, so, or, or droughts. Um, mm -hmm. So during like when there's, you know, when creeks are running dry um, and areas start, you know, drying. And so platypuses have to move between areas. So, so that's when they're very vulnerable to predation. Um, and there are accounts of foxes eating platypuses. Um, sure. Maybe sea eagles. Oh, okay. Uh, snakes, maybe, in the burrows. Mm -hmm. No, the females have, like, this, they, they block up the entrance. So they have, like, I guess, defense mechanisms against that. And then you've got, you've got, like, really, well, you used to have really big fish in the rivers. Um, 
like the big they're called like the, the cod um mm. and so like a hundred year old cod is huge and i could see that swallowing <laughs> a little a little puggle quite easily oh, for clarification a puggle is the name of a baby platypus not a non-magical platypus in fact this is actually a good chance for some overall platypus etymology the name platypus comes from the Greek platus for flat and pus for foot. So their name literally means flat foot, which is highly disappointing considering that perhaps the least descriptive of their many traits. Aboriginal people had many different regional names for the platypus, including Bundabura, Malingong, and Tambrit. According to Aboriginal legend, the platypus originated when a young female duck mated with a lonely and persuasive water rat. The duck's babies had their mother's bill and webbed feet and their father's four legs and handsome brown fur. You know, I can't seem to let go of the fact that uh, their name does not seem very descriptive of them. So I'm, I'm here to pitch a new name, a new scientific name, Ostium castoranus. Ostium for venom, anos for duck, castor for beaver. So it's venomous beaver duck. Yeah. By the way, monotreme, that name, that etymology, mono and trem means one hole because they have a cloaca, which is just the one opening for all of the jobs. You know, in in terms of the uh, the beak, so you mentioned, so you've mentioned that they're nocturnal, or yes, the bill. Sorry, you mentioned that they're nocturnal, and you mentioned that you know it's a highly sensitive. So is that are is their vision? kind of um inhibit like are, are they not very good at seeing at night and so that the, the so they have really tiny of... eyes They're, they they can see um okay. but but when they dive they close their eyes oh okay and so yeah so when they forage for food mm-hmm. that's um so they're kind of they're I don't, I don't know maybe a mix between kind of a filter feeder but but targeted filter feeding so they can I was just reading. Um, so, they, like I said, they have these electro and mechanoreceptors. Yeah. Um, and they did the study. I haven't looked exactly at the details, but they said they could, platypus could detect a, like a, a movement of a, a little freshwater yabby, so like a little shrimp. Oh, wow. From from 10 centimeters away or something like that. I saw that number somewhere. But wow. um, so, so, I guess highly, highly sensitive. And so they, they dive, close their close their eyes um, and then they just go with their bill. I guess you can imagine like a motion along the, the bottom of a creek, you know, yeah. a riverbed and they go and they kind of move their bill from kind of back and forth, left, right, left, right kind of thing. Ah, oh, like a metal detector. And, <laughs> yeah. And they go and they, and they, you know, they, they might churn some like little rocks and they between like woody debris, you mm-hmm. know, and like the you know leaves and leaf litter and whatever is on there, and they and then they eat um, a lot of like the, all the like the caddisfly and mayflies and like dragonfly nymphs and all those kind of larval stages of a lot of these animals. Um, mm-hmm. So they they focus on macro invertebrates. Okay. Um, do they yeah. do um, they have teeth? Yeah. When platypuses are born, they have uh, enamel coated teeth. Okay. Um, I, I, someone I saw somewhere was saying to, to so they can chew their way out of the egg. Oh. Um, but okay. then, I yeah that I, you know just passing on the information. But uh, but then they fall off. And then hmm. what the platypuses have is like they have these um, grinding pads. Okay. And so yeah, so they just kind of I guess and they have these cheek pouches. Um, so they, they would go, you know, suck everything at the bottom and then they'd surface. So they dive up to about three minutes. So they'll go, you know, dive in the water, munch, 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 mm-hmm. and then surface. And then they'll, they'll grind that up. And so when we, when we catch platypuses, um, what we do is we, you know, like I said, we take them out of the water. Um, we anesthetize them. Mm-hmm. And then, so, so, you know, I'm really like minimize stress on yeah. the animal as well as the researcher. Yeah. Um, and, um, so what we do is we, you know, take all the samples and stuff like that. But one of the samples is we, we like inside the platypus's mouth, we take, we have like this long spoon and we scrape bits from the cheek pouch. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have like this, 
mush thing that you take, and then we use that to ID exactly what it's eating uh, with different different. Techniques. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do they? Um, this this might be a really dumb question, um, <laughs> but but I can't help but be curious. So like in in a lot of birds, um, you know they they will eat rocks or or have rocks and things like that or pebbles or, or things like that in their mouth to kind of help break materials down. Um, do platypi do that? Platypuses. Platypuses. So, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> So the, okay, so the way the way it goes, I didn't know that when I started researching platypuses, but um, <laughs> if it's if it's a Latin root of a name, then it you get the I, so like octopus. Oh, okay, that's helpful. But if it's like, yeah, but if it's Greek, then it's uses or 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 you do or you could do platypods, but platypods is a bit weird. So so platypuses. <laughs> So I, so your question, I, I no, they don't eat, they don't need, they don't need rocks to help them physically break down the food. Mm-hmm. Sure. They, I think, I think they, um, when they're sucking their prey, they're sucking a lot of like mud and, you know, bits of gravel and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not like they don't have a stomach. Um, I, I so heard they, that recently, yeah, and um, yeah. I thought that was kind of surprising. And then I ended up looking into it more, and I realized that like twelve—I think it was twelve and a half percent of vertebrates don't have a stomach. Which okay. yeah, so most of them are fish, or it's not yeah. all of them. Yeah, I think right, mm-hmm. like the carp and all that. Mm-hmm. So um, if you don't have a stomach as a as a yeah. platypus, you know what? What do they have? <laughs> yeah, so they don't. I guess you know the 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 role of the stomach is like to start breaking down the foods, right? Like you mm-hmm. get a, a bath of acid, mm-hmm. and then like you say, some animals also throw in some rocks. To I think crocodiles, right? They 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 um, swallow the rocks as well to help them mm-hmm. with the digestion. Sure. Um, yeah. So so I guess with uh, platypuses, they don't they don't need that so when they like what they're eating is soft and it mm. and rich in protein um and it great gets broken down really quickly um in the like in the colon so well, i suppose it makes sense yeah. yeah i mean there's other animal you know like deer or, or ungulates that have uh uh you know more stomachs typically because of what they're eating so i suppose if you're eating something that doesn't require as much breakdown you just don't need one yeah 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 um, in terms of so this is a this is one where I'm always kind of interested. So um, one of the defining things about uh, mammals is you know of course mammary glands. Do do platyp- do platypuses produce milk still? Yeah. So platypuses produce milk. They don't have any teeth, um, okay. but um, they have glands that they secrete uh, milk from. And they, the puggles, uh, you know, just they kind of lap it up. Um, the, I, you know, I guess an interesting thing about the platypus milk is that it's um, because it's it kind of get, gets secreted um, on the skin, then it has quite a potent antibacterial property. Hmm. Um, so there, yeah, it's been in the news a bit, like about trying to maybe make use of, you know, those antibacterial properties to, you know, for human benefit in a sense of um, oh, interesting. trying to deal with um, drug resistant bacteria and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, mm. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> that's just, yeah. That's and, so, and the, and the venom also is um, they're looking into the benefits of the venom for insulin. Oh, um, for diabetes, because hmm. I think there's something about the mechanism in humans, like the secretion of like this um, protein gets broken down quite quickly. But in platypuses, because that same protein is associated with venom production, hmm. then they develop okay. some evolutionary mechanism that doesn't break it down as quickly. So if they can somehow figure that out um they'd be able to give it to um you know to people with diabetes and so they can manage their um diabetes much more effectively that's interesting yeah 
so much we don't know huh, about the world around us. Yeah, yeah. Um, that just reminds me of uh, how, how recently I was talking to a deep sea biologist and how she was mentioning that um, uh, glass sponges, the deep sea Arctic glass sponges are being looked at for better design of like fiber optic cables. And, wow. And I'm like, that's just who who would have thought, <laughs> you know, that this deep sea sponge, you know, could be the inspiration behind something like that. It's just uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, earlier, so you were mentioning populate, you know, studying the populations and things. So, so where where are the populations at? Are, are they declining? Um, are they, yeah. Are they, yeah. How, how are they faring? Uh, so I guess, you know, it really, you know, we don't have a really robust, accurate kind of understanding of the extent of declines. Sure. Like they did occur again, you have to I guess, imagine the, uh, the Australian continent, but they, they used to occur you think you know south australia is so they used to occur along the the murray river um it kind of flows west starts from kind of yeah like flows southwest at some point down to south australia so so platypuses used to occur there but they've um as a result of land clearing and the degradation there of the rivers as a result of um rip regulation um so they're they're almost extinct there so they they're considered um, endangered in South Australia, in the state of South Australia. Okay. Um, but in other states, um, you know, relevant states, you get from, from north, north to south, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, and you've got the Australian Capital Territory and Victoria and then Tasmania. Um, but they're, so they're not currently listed there. In Victoria, just a couple of weeks ago, after it's been a, a few years where us and others, um, Platypus researchers were kind of giving, I'll get to what we've been looking at, but mm -hmm. accumulating evidence of declines. Um, so in South, in, in Victoria, um, there, there's a nomination that now to um, list the platypus as an endangered species, um, mm -hmm. as a threatened species, species sorry, um, as a, the, the classification there is, is vulnerable. So as part of our, our research, we, we were collating, you know, all available data relating to platypuses. And then you, you kind of, I guess, a lot of it is opportunistic sightings. Um, I don't know if you've, have you, citizen science, you're, I'm sure you're aware of citizen science. Um, and so the, the, you know, people's observations that get recorded into data sets are really valuable. Um, and it really can help us to try and look at large scale kind of changes. Uh, so, so using occurrence records from, from just kind of opportunistic sightings, it is apparent that um, if you look at like the, the last year of when a platypus was observed in different areas in Australia, oh, you notice that in sure. some areas you could see that, you know, they used to, people used to see them and used to report about platypuses you know, up till the 80s or 90s, and now they haven't been recording them. Um, so you kind of can infer that, you know, and the effort increases over time. There are more people out there. There are not these, like all these mobile apps and things like that. So, you know, so also when you consider that the effort is actually increasing over time. Um, so that, that suggests, um, you know, that possible local extinctions or, you know, or declines beyond a certain probability of detection. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, so we can infer about that. What was really interesting, um, um, we had a PhD student, Anil. She um, she looked at the old historic newspapers that have been digitized here in Australia, mm -hmm. going back to early, you know, nineteen hundreds. Mm -hmm. um, and so she looked at any mention of of platypuses. So, so I guess as a background, platypuses were hunted for their fur in Australia in early European colonization of Australia. Oh, okay. Thousands and thousands and thousands of platypuses uh, were were killed, were hunted for their fur. Um, and there, are, we were so we were looking, we were tracking down the like records in the for during the fur trade in the fur markets in Sydney and Melbourne. So you you get a bit of an understanding about how many platypuses were hunted during that time um, until. Until about 1912, that's when they they were legally protected, so they stopped it, stopped hunting them. 
Um, but what's so Tania, what was she was looking at? She was looking at um, any mention of platypuses. And then what we came across was quite a large number of um, observations or mentions by people that were put in the newspaper, um, you know, accounting of observing a dozen platypuses in one time or mm. people using the term mob or even one person is called <laughs> mentioned observing like a migration of platypuses oh, wow. along a stream. Yeah. So like you get these, there are still anecdotal and they're, you know, they're not really scientific in a sense. They're not, you know, you can't control for effort or any of that. Um, yeah. But they do give you a bit of an indication from just from reading these accounts is that, it, it's apparent that platypuses were far more numerous than what they are today. Now, when you go to a river, a creek, and you see you know, two or three platypuses in one time, that's like, wow, amazing. Like, that's mm -hmm. that's a lot of platypuses. Where, as a matter of fact, like, there's this, this is, I, you know, are you familiar with the term shifting baseline? Yes. Yeah. So what we assume is... Um, that there's been this like uh, transition, a shifting baseline, a you know, the collective memory, the change in collective memory over time, where what we, you know, so what we assume now to be common isn't, um, isn't what it used to be. Um, you get that for examples in fisheries, um, you know, fish, fishing stock and the size of fish and things like that changing over time. Um, and we, and, and, you know, generation after generation and what you see around you is you assume that's what it always was but that's not the case and so you know I, I, we, we think that that's also the case for for platypuses yeah um and then so i guess we you know i was mentioning about our study so when we surveyed in looking at platypus populations in regulated rivers downstream of large dams um it was apparent that the way you managed a dam in terms of the, you know, how the timing of the water, the release of the water and how much you released and all that had a, um, a massive impact on, on platypus populations downstream. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, so a lot of, a lot of Australian rivers are regulated with large dams. Um, water security is a bit of an issue here. Yeah. Um, Australia yeah. has like the largest variability in, in water availability. Um, so, so there are a lot of dams everywhere um, yeah. and a, a strong push to put more and more dams, which is a, quite a concern for freshwater ecosystems, including platypuses. That, yeah, that, that's complicated. I can see. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So we're putting in, uh, you know, I guess this, this podcast would, would, will, um, come out after we submit. Um, so it doesn't, so I'm happy to have a chat about it. So we're putting in, we're working now with a, a couple of NGOs with WWF as well as, um, ACF, Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, and what we're doing is we're undertaking kind of a very rigorous assessment of all available data um, relating to the platypus. And, and what we're, the plan is to put in a table, a formal submission to the federal government to um, assess or, you know, at, at least for the committee to assess um, the conservation status of the platypus and, mm -hmm. and ideally uh, get it listed as a as a vulnerable species oh wow um as yeah. a threatened yeah because 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 if it i think you know obviously first of all the, the evidence seems to indicate that yeah. that's the case yeah but we but we we really were lacking a lot of we're lacking a good data um and we really need um a federal push for monitoring platypuses because otherwise yeah not knowing what's going on until it's too late and with conservation like it's been shown time and time again like preemptive proactive action is far more uh you know economical yeah as well as effective in terms of protecting uh species i i've heard it i've heard it put before and an inch of mitigation is worth a worth a pound of uh you know restoration or you know like yeah you know, just you know just putting forth just a little bit and, and some prevention is going to be, you know, endlessly more worthwhile than trying to go back, you know, once something has already occurred and, and trying to restore things. Um, and I, I know in conservation, that's, that's always kind of the push and it's, it's hard to convince for whatever reason, and maybe it's pocketbooks or whatever. Um, it's hard to convince people of that that, you know, if we just do this now, it's going to be way more impactful than, 
waiting <laughs> and seeing what happens and doing it later. And a lot of times you're fighting against their like vested interests. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we're living in this kind of obviously false premise that we can just keep exploiting resources in a finite world um, mm -hmm. and uh, with absolutely no ramification. And so you have, I think, I, I don't understand Know, the the reasoning there but you have people just constantly pushing for more development and more you know in the case yeah. of the platypus like you know people want to have more build larger dams so they can have larger um irrigation infrastructure so they can plant more and do this so it's mm -hmm. a bit of a runway um and then yeah. you get land clearing and yeah all of these threatening processes it's very frustrating Now, here we are for the listener lightning round. Let's see. Uh, first up, we had one from at Waffles the Magic saying, if someone was bitten by a radioactive platypus, what powers would they gain? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the, what, so then have you, when you grew up, did you see Manimal? Oh, that Remember sounds that really familiar. Yeah, yeah. Manimal, that guy who's turning into, what is he, turning into a cougar. Yeah, something like something, that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess you know if you were bitten or you were spurred by a radioactive oh, platypus, you would be a manipus. <laughs> so I could, yeah, you'd have like these probably venomous spurs <laughs> and um, electroreceptors. See, I, that yeah. could that could be useful. <laughs> Superpower, yeah, <laughs> electroreceptors, yeah, yeah. Uh, very useful. Let's see. Um, uh, Vikram Baliga of the podcast Planthropology said, just like, what? <laughs> Apparently very confused <laughs> about um, uh, platypuses in general. Um, <laughs> Stephanie um, at Of Lies and Hope asks, what type of toxin is in their venom and how does it work? Oh, well, tough question. Um, I think it's like, so like I said, it's a neuro inhibitor or something mm -hmm. like that. And it... it it triggers it so the pain is like it's muscular pain or something like that oh, okay um, and it doesn't like we said it doesn't cause any tissue damage mm -hmm. so they're not too sure if the pain there is because of like it gets swollen so is it just because like it's swelled up or is that so they're not really sure sure or if it's just what, you know exciting as much of neurons or so much yeah exactly yeah. okay um did there used to be giant platypuses? Yeah. Um, yes. So yeah, great. So platypuses, like a lot of you know, the, during the evolution of mammals, you had like this period of megafauna. Mm -hmm. um, with I, with a lot of the megafauna, like the, the the decline of big mammals, in some places were related to um, humans arriving. Uh, okay. I know, like in the Americas, I think that was yeah. the case, and yeah. um, and in Australia as well. They're they're not really sure, but there was, so there was like you had like these giant wombats and things like that. Mm. So there there was um, uh, mammal megafauna extinction coinciding with uh, human arrival here, um, mm -hmm. 100 to 100,000 years ago. Um, yeah. So, but. Um, Mammals, uh, so platypuses, yeah, they used to have, and then you find there, they find they find fossils of all of these platypus ancestors, giant, bigger platypus ancestors, also mm. in South America as well. Oh, oh, so that's they used right. to, yeah. yeah. So, because so, the continent of Australia broke off from like South America, was it Gondwana, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it it kind of went down, stayed for a while around Antarctica. Mm -hmm. and then started moving up. Um, I know I was chatting to this uh, researcher, Mike Archer. He's, he's quite a, he, he does, he's done a lot of paleo stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And he, he reckons like the, the, the decline, the, like the, the extinctions of, the extinction of all, because the platypus doesn't have any, Gen, uh, evolutionary relatives other than the echidna. Um, oh, really? And yeah, so they're kind of almost like a dead end lineage, mm. and so that and 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 the uh, and their extent and their decline in South America, like their extinction in the in the continent there, and 
their decline here they used to, in across australia so the, he he thinks that they're kind of a bit of a like an evolutionary dead end in a sense let's see you so you've said puggles a few different times is there a particular reason that the that the babies are called uh, puggles I th- yeah i don't think it's like a formal term You're probably young or something like that but puggles is pretty cute and everyone seems to be using it <laughs> i'm trying to coin the term pandemonium of like the venerating term <laughs> of platypuses i like you know it. The, the the plural co- what is it like the co- collective noun uh sofia carrera asked if they produce venom year round I, i'm wondering I'm so- if maybe they wonder if it's like you know more so in the mating season yeah so that's what we yeah we said like more so in the mating season but but yes year year round um they have like a baseline uh, amount of venom yeah um let's see sean allen of the podcast petri disc asks, uh what's going on with their sex chromosomes apparently great question (laughs) yeah so platypuses have five pairs of sex chromosomes right we've got just the one we've got the xy Mm -hmm. for males and xx for females um so so yeah it's pretty weird so platypuses um like females have five pairs of XX and males have five pairs of XY. My understanding is that there's like the Ys and the are different. Like you've got different Ys and you get different Xs, and they're all a bit mixed up. I'm not. I'm not really a like a geneticist. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding is that it, it was kind of there's no real like we haven't come up with like a valid hypothesis why this is sure um it, it could have been just like a an accident at some point um and 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 they seem to be doing just fine with that <laughs> yeah i suppose if it's you know if it's not broken there's no reason for uh natural selection to really yeah. fix it huh so <laughs> i guess with evolution at some point you're like you know if you for some reason that's mm-hmm. what you you lost a trait or you acquired something and so it's Evolution plays around with what it has. It doesn't like you know. It's like we can start sprouting wings, and um, so so I guess a, a, a species is stuck with whatever it has, and even yeah. if it's no reason to have it, it can't you know. Getting rid of it is you need like an evolutionary force to get rid of something or create something. Yeah. Um, so it's like I guess with the like the stomachs we're talking about, like platypuses are probably not gonna on evolutionary scale are not gonna grow a stomach back. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is probably the weirdest question that has ever been submitted in the history of our show, and, I'm, and I already feel bad asking it. Um, <laughs> what, uh-huh. what, what, we... what does the custard taste like if you use their milk and eggs, and why do you know wow. the answer? <laughs> and why do you know the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a bit of a trap. They're just trying to see uh, if you... <laughs> Yeah, I will anecdote with um, platypus poo when it comes out. It stinks as um, <laughs> horribly. Um, uh, it's like platypoo. Is, what is it? We platypoo. <laughs> yeah, um, it could be like a cologne, platypoo or eau de poo. It's really, really horrible. And because you see in some of the places where they, they, you know, where platypuses occur, it's like almost like a bit boggy and where they're eating, it's a bit yucky and like leaf litter and it's all Mm. composing litter and things like that. So you kind of, you know, not, not, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not surprising. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I do not, the eggs are tiny. The eggs are about um, an inch in size. So if you would use the trying to do, yeah, it's not, no, you need quite a, quite a challenge. Yeah. So I don't know the answer. Sorry. That's, that's good. That's good. I, I yeah. think they were hoping you didn't. Um, <laughs> good grief. Uh, badly drawn science ask, why are the Tasmanian platypuses bigger than those on the mainland? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it comes down to thermal regulation mm-hmm. um, and the ratio, you know, between like body mass and, um, and what's the word I'm looking for? Surface area. Ah, sure, sure. Right. So, yeah. the, like, if you do the the ratios, um, and so you have all these uh, Bergman's rule um, of body size and Rappaport's rule. There are all these like allometric rules in, in in ecology. You're you're probably you know all of them, right? Mm-hmm. You, you teach them. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, 
So which one is it? Do you remember? Is it, is it Bergman's rule? Or... I, I feel like it's Bergman's. Bergman sounds right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, so Mike Mike Nialis. I, I I'm going to kind of rephrase the question a little bit because um, he's asking about the the venom and being a venomous mammal and how did that happen. Um, is there? I mean, is there reason to believe that that you know was something that was more common previously that you know it's it sort of just retained in, in platypuses or that platypuses kind of distinctly individually evolved this this spur? Yeah, I think that, like their closest relative, the echidnas. I don't think they're venomous. Yeah, I didn't think um, so. No, so yeah. so they they must have evolved it. Like I think that. I'm trying to remember reading about um, like the venom gland and whether it was like an evolution of a, like a sweat gland. Mm, sure. And we we're talking about, I think, I can't remember. And then we're right in the, and the venom is somehow related. Like it gets the, it's very similar to insulin. And so I think mm -hmm. um, not it's like it's similar to a digestive enzyme. Hmm. Um I yeah I don't know when they evolved the venom the spur and the venom but uh, mm -hmm. it, it, I guess to in terms of on in a, on a, I guess a natural selection perspective um, I guess it's it, there's male platypuses with venomous spurs are like it's an advantageous trait yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess if you know if it's in terms of and if in terms of breeding and and uh, mate selection and that's mm -hmm. that's quite a strong evolutionary force so you know a male without any spurs that won't be able to fend off other males yeah um is not going to breed um and so that that that's that trait is gonna yeah like non platypuses with no no spurs is probably a trait that would yeah wouldn't survive mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense it does yeah i guess yeah. so yeah um this is something that's kind of a I know sometimes it's a hard question to answer, but everybody always asks. And, and if we don't ask people on the show, then people always end up asking us later. Um, people always want to know what they can do to help. So in terms yeah. of, of platypus conservation, I mean, is there anything that uh, people can do to contribute? Specifically, well, you come to Australia. Mm -hmm. to the, I, I get your listeners, they're Australian, some of them. Uh, yep. Um, yep. So I, for, us, the, for the Australian listeners, um, we're talking about citizen science. Um, so, you know, you, you, you can contribute by actually going down to the river um, or creek and, and observing platypuses and recording it. So you have these really good apps now on, on mobile phones, um, like the, in Australia. The Atlas of Living Australia is now, mm -hmm. they've joined forces with iNaturalist. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah so and um so you can you know upload observations um and if mm -hmm. you've seen multiple individuals and all that like uh, that information is really useful um so actually doing con you know actually proactively contributing to science is is uh is great mm -hmm. um being conscious about you know protecting our rivers um, mm -hmm. And the importance of freshwater ecosystems and the many services it, pro it provides. So, you know, being conscious about um, the, the impact humans have had and are having still on, on you know, on, on the natural um, environment, the world around us um, mm -hmm. is really, you have to be mindful. And so, you know, you could, uh, I guess, volunteer with land care groups. That, so, like, um, you know, um, you can go and Reveg riparian areas mm, and, sure. and things like that, so you can volunteer and time and things like that, and then I guess vote wisely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah. if um, conservation and sustainability and all that are on a priority, so you know, um, over you know, not at the expense of uh, you know eternal economic growth. So yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. vote wise. I think it's... that's yeah. If you uh, if you had a take home message to to you know to tell people why they should um, be interested in, in platypuses, uh, interested in in their survival, um, what what would that be? So, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the the our motivation to protect the natural world mm -hmm. around us, um, you know, there's an ethical 
motivation there in mm -hmm. terms of like you know our impact and like our who are we to drive a species to extinction and obviously you know we're 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 causing we're we're in the midst of a mass extinction um, mm -hmm. in terms of like extinction rates of, of species and so and, I, and, it, and the second motivation is in terms of realizing that we, we cannot exist without nature. I mean, you know, if, if we would, if humans would disappear now, nature would be doing just fine, you know, even better. But without nature, there's, humans cannot exist. We rely on so many ecosystem services. And so, you know, just being mindful and respective of the natural environment and, and realize that again, that, you know, we're the, the amount of, we can't just keep exploiting the, you know, the natural environment around us and keep taking resources away without any consequences to our own uh, welfare and well-being. Um, so yeah, I think that's that should be a priority for everyone. And um, and I think being not not feeling feeling helpless is really easy. Yeah. I think, you know, you see around you like so many issues and you feel so it's very frustrating and it seems like you're very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, like maybe, yeah, but like believe in yourself and if you're passionate about something, go, go and do it. Um, that's, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's well put. I, I think that's, uh, I think that's a pretty universal uh I think, and that's and that's just in general, you know, whether it's climate change or, or just conservation. I, I feel like a lot of the problem with that as an issue is it doesn't really mesh well with um, human psychology because it's it's because it is so abstract and big and and it's very easy to go like, oh, you know, this is all just negative information. I can't do anything about it, and then so I'm just going to ignore it for now. And um, that's no, it's not, not going good. away. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's not, that's not a good, uh, that's not a good response. And so, um, you know, realizing that you've got some personal stake and uh, personal power and, and responsibility, like ethically, uh, like you said, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's more fun. Thank you again, Dr. Jalad Bino, for joining us for this episode. Um, thank you for listening out there, who, whoever you may be, wherever you may be. Uh, please consider leaving us a rating or review. Um, that, that kind of stuff always helps. It takes just a couple of seconds. I know you have no obligation to do so, but if you could, just out of the kindness of your heart, uh, it would be very appreciated. Also, if you want to support the show, actually our plethora of shows, our, our growing network of shows, you can do that at patreon.com slash the wildlife. I'm Devin Boker. This is Wildlife. Peace out, Rainbow Trout.